let me ask you a quick question this morning. How many of y'all have ever been accused of being a tattletale? How many of y'all are in this building today and you were always the one told on? Everybody else was a tattletale, not you. Well, James chapter 3. I didn't write this. Preaching expositionally through a book does not allow you to pick and choose what it is that you want to preach about or not to preach about. You take it verse by verse, and that's what we're going to do. First 12, cha- uh, first 12 verses of chapter number 3 is where we're going to be today. You know, talking about tattletales. <clears throat> Me, I never told on anybody. Okay. <clears throat> never. Who said we're in church? <laughs> okay. I think we would all probably find ourselves guilty at some point in time that we've probably done that in our life. Well, let me say this to you this morning. Our tongue tells on us. Did you know that? It does. Our tongue tells. Matter of fact, let me tell you what it does. It tells on the heart and it reveals the real person. That's what it does. So matter of fact, this morning you can leave out of here and say, yep, your tongue is a tattletale. It happens because it does. It reveals exactly who we are. Also, someone has observed, and I was reading this, that because the tongue is in a wet place, it can easily slip. And I thought, why can't I ever come up with any of those things? You know, somebody comes up with all of these things. So I got to thinking, I said, how many of y'all have ever used the phrase, ah, it's a slip of the tongue? Huh? Now here's another one for you. You ready for this? Well, you know, that was really said with tongue in cheek. I've often wondered, have you ever tried to put your tongue in your cheek and then talk? It's difficult, but we say Matter of fact, there's even another one that that we often will use and say, well, you know, that was a Freudian slip. Do you see how it it just becomes a part of who we are, this tongue that lives with inside of us? What's interesting here, James is going to use the tongue as another test of a living faith. Who would have ever thought that our tongue would be a test of a living faith? Well, I want you to notice verse 1 and verse 2 of James chapter number 3. And notice what it says. James writes, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. He's talking to believers here, and here's what he says. He says, so don't, don't let many of you become teachers. The next part of verse number one, the last part of verse one, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Verse two, for we all stumble in many ways. I have that underlined, highlighted, parentheses around it, stars by it. If I could get neon lights around it, I'd put them around it. Why? Because we all stumble in many ways. Every one of us. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body 
is well. Let me say this to you. You know, it, it's work. It's something that we have to work at every single day. Matter of fact, every single hour of every single day to maintain a sanctified tongue. Because we're so quick to let it fly. And here's the difficult thing is, is sometimes is, is once they've gone, there's no pulling them back. So in verse 1, James says, you better be careful if you're going to teach. What, is, what, is, what does he mean by this? As a believer, we must carefully consider and realize the seriousness of teaching. Sometimes I think we, we, we miss that. Anybody can teach. Anybody can open a book and teach. Maybe so. But have we ever set and considered the seriousness of what it is that we teach? You see, we have the responsibility that, that when we teach, we teach the whole counsel of God. We teach the Word of God. And matter of fact, sometimes I think we lose sight of this, that as a teacher of the Word of God, at the end of the day, we find ourselves standing in a much stricter judgment. Why? It's because of the seriousness of what it is that we're teaching. You see, to sin with the tongue while acting as a speaker of God is grave. And especially when we find ourselves as teachers and teachers who misrepresent the word of God can do more spiritual and moral damage to God's people than anything. The whole council Genesis to the book of the Revelation to understand the seriousness and the magnitude by which we stand and proclaim or teach the Word of God. And my dear friend, there is absolutely no way that we can stand and teach and preach the Word of God until we ourselves have spent considerable amount of time in the Word of God. It must be. Because when it comes to our exegesis of the Word of God. In other words, the way that we take the text and the, the way through hermeneutics that we interpret that text and the way we lay that text out and the way that we then proclaim that text to those, the seriousness of doing that, I believe sometimes just absolutely escapes who we are. And I'm going to tell you something. What What... What is a greater burden on my heart every time I teach or preach the Word of God is God, don't ever let me get to the point that I teach something that is false or wrong or incorrect. But we're human. Verse 2, here's what James says. We all stumble in many ways. I hear people, I have people share this with me all the time. Well, you know, that's not the way I was taught this. 
that's not the way I've heard it before. And my dear friend today, if I, if I could share this with you, it, it would be this. People desperately need to hear the Word of God today. Let's be faithful to the Word of God. To teach it and to preach it the way that God intended for it to occur. But there's another word in verse 2 that's an interesting word. It's the word perfection. And it really connects back to chapter 1 and verse number 4. If you go back to verse 4 of chapter 1, I want you to notice what James wrote. He says, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It talks about the testing of our faith produces endurance. And the endurance, when it has its perfect result, is to do what? Is to grow us. It, it grows us to the point and to the place that we need to be. And my dear friend, listen to me. You can't preach the Word of God. You can't teach the Word of God until, first of all, you find yourself inside the Word of God. And it's interesting of what he's, of what he's going to do from here. Because what we find him moving to here in in verse 3, is he's going to use some analogies to describe the power of the tongue. And it's interesting that, that he uses a horse and he uses a ship. Look at verse 3. He says, now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, We direct their entire body as well. So also, or verse 4, look at the ship also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by, by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members, is that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But verse 8, James writes, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. As I was studying this week, I thought about Brother Keith Russ. Not from the tongue perspective, okay. I probably ought to clarify this, Brother Keith. Uh, Brother Keith knows what I'm talking about. It's horses, okay. Brother Keith has been around horses for years, okay. I've got a good friend of mine who trains cutting horses. That bit that is in a horse's mouth is not just there to look nice. That bit in a horse's mouth is the control of that animal. 
Because that bit, and if I'm not mistaken, that bit lies across the top of the tongue, not underneath it. And it is pulled back in the crevices of the mouth to be able to steer that horse any way that that horse should go or is supposed to go. Sometimes they get other ideas of where they think they want to go. And it's important to hold back on those reins of a horse to do what? To control them, to tame them, to bring them under control. And then, then James uses something else as interesting as the ship. And he talks about the rudder. You know, I've always wondered how in the world, even though you've got a large engine on the back of a boat, some of them at 250, 275, 285, 300, 325. Matter of fact, I've even seen some of these boats that go out in some of the, you know, offshore and so on. They got four of these outboard motors sitting on the outside of this boat. But have you ever noticed that the propeller at the back, at the bottom foot of that, it's not that big. And I've often wondered how in the world that that, that little propeller on the back of that thing can move that boat everywhere it wants to go just by the turning of the wheel. What about a rudder on the back of a ship? Matter of fact, they used to use, they used to use that rudder. Matter of fact, we used to call it, we used, we used to get in these, these little John boats, it's what we called them. They were flat bottom boats that we used to do frog gigging with. Now I know. Matter of fact, I've been called a sissy about frog gigging because we use gigs. Said, you, you must not have lived in Louisiana very long. We don't use gigs. We grab them by our hand. I'm like, you do what? <laughs> well, how do you know just looking from a set of eyes that it's a frog or other, other creature? He said, you'll know. <laughs> I said, that's what I'm afraid of. It'll be too late at that point. I, I'll just stick to the gig, okay? But anyway. But we used, to, we used to do something called sculling that boat. And the guy would sit on the back end of the boat with that paddle, and he could direct that boat anywhere it wanted to go or it needed to go. So James says, you know, it's just like that bridle in a horse's mouth. It's just like the rudder on the back of a ship. But then he moves to something else. If you look down at verse 5 and verse 6, so also the tongue is a small part. Let me ask you a question. It is small, isn't it? It's there. But boy, what a fire it can stir up sometimes. Huh? Doesn't it? It can stir up a lot. Matter of fact, in Mississippi, we refer to it as this way. Boy, you sure stirred up a hornet's nest this time. Mm -hmm. We allow our tongue to get the best of us. And oh, by the way, doesn't it boast of great things? My, 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 look what I've done. If we're not careful, we can... Uh, if we don't guard it, before long, it begins to boast about who we are, about what we've accomplished. 
Next part of verse 5, see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. I'm going to tell you something. I, <clears throat> I have burned piles, okay? And it's neat when it's cold outside, you know, to, to burn stuff outside, burn limbs and all those kind of things, okay? But one of the things that you always are concerned about is that little small fire that you set I have seen it happen where it was intended just to be a little small fire, and before long, half of a set of woods is on fire. Why? Did you know that for a lot of forest fires, they're started simply by a small burning ember that catches hold of something dry? Our tongue is the same way. That's what James says. He said in verse 6, and the tongue is a what? It's a fire. Or can be. You see, a small fire can turn into a massive fire. I know just watching up in Canada right now from the west coast of Canada all the way to the east coast of Canada. I want to say, I, I forget how many, but I mean, it's just, it's the acreage that's being burned up by these fires is unbelievable. And I'm going to tell you something, they didn't start out as a big fire. They started out as something very, very small. And oftentimes in our lives, the fires that come as a result of our tongue, it was never intended for it to become a massive fire. But that's what it will turn into if we're not careful. You see, the tongue is not merely powerful. It's not just merely powerful. It is uncontrollably powerful and destructive. It can be. Destructive. Especially when untruths are told. Especially when we don't have all of the facts. And especially when we begin to go down a path that sometimes instead of going down the path of opening our mouth, we should have gone down the path of spending time in a prayer closet praying over it. That's what happens. James is warning the believers here about that. Oh, be careful if you desire to teach. We have a body, but we have a very small member. And if we're not careful, it'll tell on us. You see, the destructive power of the tongue comes from that great agent of destruction. And I'll tell you who it is, Satan himself. Matter of fact, he likes to twist words. And I'm sure none of us in here have ever had words twisted on us. He's also good at planting doubt. You say, Brother Robert, what are you talking about? Genesis chapter 3, it's very simple. In the Garden of Eden, Satan looked at Eve, and here's what he told her. He said, surely God didn't say that. And my dear friend, that's just the path he wants you to go down. Surely God didn't say that. That's an issue right now. That's a debate right now. 
what I'm going to and what several in here are going to this next week on, on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Surely that's not what the Word of God says. Surely that is not what the Word of God means. My dear friend, we have it from Genesis to the book of the Revelation. Why don't we just take it in its all sufficiency for what it stands for and the truth of what it stands for and just stand on it? Huh? Surely God didn't say. But what's really interesting next is what James says in verse number 7. And oh, by the way, the end of verse 6, and is set on fire by hell by Satan himself. That's what that phrase means. Come to verse number 7, and guess what he talks about next? Is the beasts and the birds and the reptiles, creatures of the sea. Is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. You know, it's amazing to me. I, you know, most of y'all know I do have... <coughs> I, I'm just very, I'm just very minor. Okay, I, okay, I don't have hundreds of head. Okay, of anything. All right, I've got, I've got twelve chickens and a rooster out there. Okay, who absolutely are are, are just like little kids. Okay, they're just, they're just like little kids. And the two calves. Here's an amazing thing about those two calves. I can walk right out there between them two calves. I can walk out there. Matter of fact, I can tame them real quickly, and I have. Matter of fact, when I walk through that gate with a white bucket, guess what? They can be on the far side of the pasture, and they can see me walking. As soon as they hear that gate open, guess what? Got that white bucket? Here they come. And I mean, they'll come right up. They'll come right up around you, okay. And you can feed them all that, and pet them, and all that kind of good stuff, okay. But we tame them. Matter of fact, I had somebody make a comment to me yesterday about the chickens. I can drive home in the evenings from the church, pull in the driveway. The chickens are out. I can pull in the driveway. They hear my truck when it hits the driveway, on the gravel. And if they're out, and if I walk from my truck to go back to where. The back side is where the barn is back there. They can, be, they can be scattered all over the place. As soon as they see me, here they come. And they get up right around my feet. Let me tell you something else about them chickens. <clears throat> I can carry a white bucket with their feet in it. And guess what? They get all... I, I stepped on two of them just the other night trying to get them out of my way. Okay, why? They wanted what was in that bucket. But we can tame the animals. And the creation that God has given us. And it's amazing to me that we can do that with that side. But yet this small member that's inside of us, it just gets in the way sometimes, doesn't it? All right, and let me kind of just, just bring it to, a, to kind of a, a summary part here. Only you, as an individual, can subdue and guard 
your greatest force, and that's the power of speech. Have you ever gone out to Google? <laughs> I've told y'all, Google, hey, Google is 100% true of everything you put in there. Have you ever considered, let me tell you something, go to Google sometimes and put in what is the power of speech. It'll amaze you what comes back. And here's the other, here, here's, here's the other, here's the other interesting thing. Go out there and just ask for quotes from different ones. And here, and let me tell you what. It's an amazing thing about all of the quotes that come back. Let me tell you what that symbolizes and what that speaks to is the power of speech. It's the power of spoken words. And fo- folks, listen to me. Sometimes I think we lose sight of just how powerful sometimes what we say can be. Both encouraging and uplifting, but also in its destruction. Verse 9 and verse 10. James writes, here comes the hypocrisy of it all. Look at verse 9 and verse 10. Because with it, with it, we bless our Lord and Father and turn right around and with it, we curse men who have been made in the very likeness of God himself. James says that's the hypocrisy of it. Verse 11. Um, I'm sorry, verse 10. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. But I want you to notice what James writes. He says, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. They ought not to be this way. Period. You notice there's no, okay, there's no, well, if this or if that or if this or if that or if this or if that. He just said they shouldn't be this way. And then he's going to close this part of his letter in his fashion with some rhetorical questions. And I want you to notice verse 11 and verse 12. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Now, I, don't, I remember growing up as a boy, we used to, we, I, I didn't know what city water was. All the water we drank came out of a well. And matter of fact, we used to go up on the top of this hill area, and there was a, there was a deep well that was up there, and we used to go fill up these one-gallon glass jars with water that came out of that deep well. And when you put it in that, that, that gallon glass jar, okay, it had condensation that built, built up on the outside. You want to know why? Because it was ice cold. And we used to take a dipper. Anybody know what a dipper is in here? And oh, by the way, the dipper always hung right up by the kitchen sink, and that's where the water was. And guess what? I tell you this, but everybody drank out of the same dipper. We didn't worry about it. We all drank out of the same dipper. And we'd take that dipper boy and dip down in that water, and it was the sweetest, coldest water. 
But you know, one of the things that I noticed is whenever we went to get water out of that well, the water was never bitter. And let me tell you why. Because the water that came out of that well was cool and sweet. So can a fountain give both sweet and bitter water out of it at the same time? And the answer, of course, to that question is no. And look at verse 12. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? And I know some folks are going, that's just a dumb question. No, it's not. Because it's not any different than when it comes to our own tongue and our own mouth. And then he says, nor can salt water produce fresh. So the question this morning comes down to this. So, so how do I respond to James's letter today? What do, I, what do I do with this letter? This portion of his letter? Because I'm going to tell you something. This is tough. This is, this is tough. Because let me tell you what it does. When you spend time, an extended period of time, hours of a day going through, reading this over and over and over again, it doesn't take you long to start to look at your own self. How do we frame words? You know, then I began to think about Proverbs, and so I started looking through Proverbs. And you know what I found in Proverbs? Are you ready for this? Let me just give you a few. A soft answer turns away wrath. How about this? Words fitly spoken are like apples of gold and pitchers of silver. For out of the heart man speaks. That's exactly what James, it's evidence of our faith. If we have a living faith, if we have a faith that is alive, then it ought not to be so is what James said. And so when we, when we consider our lives, so what do we do with it? How do we frame our words? How do we frame the way that we respond? How do we live each day? Especially when somebody does something to us or somebody cuts us off or somebody does this or somebody does that. How quick are we to... And even sometimes in our, our moments of disagreements or discussions, how many times have we ever said something that we wish we would have never said? Because the difficulty is we can never take it back. So, believers regenerated by God through His Word should bear fruit in keeping with their new status. Consistently speaking good, kind, and true words toward both God and to man. So in closing, let's go to Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus himself is going to speak to this subject. Chapter 7 of Matthew. And I'll finish with this. Beginning in verse 16, Jesus says, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? 
So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 20, he said, so then, you will know them by their what? By their That's a lot. It's a lot to digest, a lot to take in. So what do we do with this this morning? Well, I have two things for you. Number one, this requires that we all search our own hearts and see where we are and then allow God to work in us. Number two, I have shared with you, mentioned this to you, the seriousness of this coming week, these next few days that are coming up. I've asked you to pray. Well, I'm going to ask you this morning, okay, as a church family, that even this morning, that we spend some time praying for God's, listen to me, please, for God's will to be done in these next days. Not mine. Not ours, but his. My prayer is that we'll continue to stand on the all-sufficiency of the Word of God. And not to deviate from it. And then what a blessing it is this morning to worship together with Brother Reuben and his son and Abraham. What a picture of a coming day when we'll all stand around the throne of God. Amen.